Well, you can turn to 1 Samuel 12 if you haven't already. Uh, we're going to focus our attention on verses 12 to 25. So, so we're returning to our studies where we left them the week before Easter. Um, and, and as you know, we've been working through the text of Samuel, uh, coming upon this chapter, which we called Samuel's Renewal Sermon. We might be kind of tempted to call this Samuel's retirement sermon because he references the fact that he served Israel from his youth until now when he's old and gray. Um, however, by the end of this chapter, we do see that he promises to continue to pray for the people, continue to teach the, the people. We know from the narrative he's got about 30 more years of ministry still among Israel. So while Samuel moves to the periphery in a sense as the kings now will take central stage, um, as, as he moves to the periphery, Samuel is still engaged in ministry. And rather than call this a kind of farewell sermon, it's better to understand it for exactly what it is, and that is a, a renewal sermon. Uh, Samuel is speaking to the need for Israel's own spiritual renewal. Uh, they need to be renewed in their, in their trust of the living God, especially as they're thinking about being renewed as a kingdom of God's people. Um, and as, we've, as we follow the narrative, we know why spiritual renewal uh, and the need for that is present among the people of Israel. Uh, we know it's necessary because at this time in the Old Testament storyline, the people of Israel have once again uh, fallen into sin. They've actually fallen into what the Scriptures refer to as idolatry. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about how Samuel uses this Hebrew word tohu a couple times down in verse 21 of our chapter. And I just say it out loud because it's a fun word to say, tohu. Uh, but it's memorable in that it's one of the words that we find in the beginning of our Bible when uh, the creation account is described there before the Lord started forming the land and, and separating the waters from the, from the dry land. There was still darkness over the face of the deep and that created order at the time was referred to as, as tohu vavohu. It was formless and empty. And it's that emptiness word that uh, the prophet Isaiah will later pick up on. It's the emptiness word that, that Samuel picks up on here to refer to ultimately the, the false hopes of the people. It's a word that becomes uh, synonymous with idolatry in a sense that it reflects uh, something that can't give life, something that's formless of, of substance, uh, something that is ultimately empty. And, and so Samuel uses that word here to describe what the people have been following after. They've been idolatrous. In this case, uh, they've been relying on, on the emptiness of a king like the nations to rescue them from this Nahash character who, who attempted to, to bring harm to them in the last chapter. So they've been trusting in something, or in this case someone, other than the living God to ultimately provide the rescue and the, and the, and the wholeness ultimately that they needed. And what Samuel does for the people is he calls them back from a place of, of spiritual emptiness. We can put it that way. He calls them uh, back from a place uh, chasing after what ultimately won't profit them, what won't bring them the help that they need uh, to this place of, of trusting in the Lord. There's a call here to repentance from idolatry and a renewal of, of trust in, in the God who, who proves himself continually faithful to save. And, uh, and while Israel's need for spiritual renewal is evident as we study the narrative, as we reflect personally, we can see the extraordinary help that is here for us in our own spiritual lives. We always remember uh, what the Apostle Paul tells us about the Old Testament, that what's here in the narrative isn't just a matter of recounting historical events for us, but it's actually here as an exemplary lesson. What's here is an example for us and, and what it looks like to follow the living God. And as we think about Israel's idolatry, uh, we, can, we can search our own hearts and know very well that chasing after empty things can consume us too. 
It might look a little different in our time and social context. I don't think any of us are, are concerned about uh, Nahash coming over to our house and invading our property or something of that nature. Uh, but we know what it is to go after alternatives to God and His way, hoping that those alternatives will somehow bring a kind of satisfaction or rest or peace or, or wholeness. Uh, we, we feel our need for something to pull us out and rescue us. And, and ultimately, uh, even what appears to offer the greatest hope, what seems like it might offer the most potential uh, for, for a kind of renewed wholeness in our lives by the world's standards, we know that can become futile. It does become futile. Uh, so just as an illustration, I ran across this in my, in my reading this week. Uh, you'll, you'll know the name Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie. Um, as, as you know, he became one of the richest men in the 19th century because of his, his uh, steel, uh, steel company. Uh, but in the early 30s, he made this comment. He made, he made this comment. He said, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. And then Carnegie goes on to say this, to continue much longer, again, he says this as a man in his early 30s, to continue much longer, overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts, wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, would degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. And, and so he, he finishes by saying, I will resign business at 35 years old. That's what he resolves to do. And, and that's such an interesting comment. Now, least of all, because Carnegie didn't quit business at 35, he continued uh, to pursue wealth, so much so that he actually surpassed Rockefeller as one of the richest men in the world during that time. And, and while, he did, while he did give much of his money away as his life went on, at the beginning of his financial pursuit, it's just interesting to see what he's recognizing going on in his own heart between, uh, in terms of this attachment to, to the pursuit of money because he recognized he could be carried away by something. So in this case, it was the pursuit of, of finances, but, but he could be carried away by something that ultimately degraded him. He recognized this tension going on in his own heart. In fact, later he says this. He says... I have known millionaires starved for lack of the nutrition which alone can sustain all that is human in man, and I know workmen and many so-called poor men who revel in luxuries beyond the power of those millionaires to reach. So, so he's recognizing something going on here. He's experienced and, and even seen firsthand the fact that, that idolatry, in his case, an inordinate pursuit of, of getting richer and richer and richer, the inordinate pursuit of that ultimately can't satisfy because he's saying near the end of his life, there are some things that are just purely beyond the reach of money. You, you, you just can't, you can't be satisfied with this. And, and that honest reflection is something that we can identify with because we can see how chasing after uh, what might be initially extremely attractive and seem so hopeful, we can see how ultimately it can lead to emptiness and, and things that are actually contrary to true life. So, so, for example, we can see that in chasing after uh, certain relationships that never satisfy, there's actually not the hope sourced in that relationship we thought there might be. Oh, this is what's going to make me whole. We get there and we realize, no, this isn't what makes me whole. Or we can see that same thing in, in holding to ideals that ultimately leave us confused maybe, aimless, not sure of what direction to go. We can see this kind of thing in certain life ambitions or, or various indulgences, whatever it may be. These things are ultimately tohu. They, they prove to be empty and void. They, they replace the centrality of, of what the Lord alone uh, can provide for us as the one who brings relief to our hearts. 
And so, and so what we need, just as Israel needed it here in this passage, what we need is, is, is a thorough understanding of what it looks like to engage in spiritual renewal in our Christian life because we can be drawn away by these things. We, we need uh, these kind of calls back to a life of faith in God, uh, just like Samuel is ministering to the people here. And, and, so, and so this is where Samuel's renewal sermon helps us. The context, obviously, is vastly different than the context that we live in. However, that we discover that we can feel ourselves uh, to be at distance from God. We can feel ourselves in need of being renewed in our trust in God. And, and it just may be that this morning for you, that you, that you feel generally uh, dry, spiritually speaking, and meditate that. Uh, we, we can certainly think and be helpful in that case. Uh, but even if we go a step beyond that, uh, we, we can certainly face seasons in our lives where we're more than just spiritually dry. It may be this morning that you feel a bit at sea in terms of being tossed from one hope to another. It may be that, that you've been going after various things that seem to offer uh, some immediate relief initially, but ultimately they leave you burdened in the end, the conscience is troubled, hearts are darkened and heavy, these kinds of things. And a passage like this can provide great help for us because the truth that's here calls us back. It doesn't just, and it doesn't just call us back, but it provides us with an extraordinary hope that comes from the living God Himself who promises a continued engagement in our lives as we come back to Him again and again. So, so with all that said, uh, by way of introduction, we'll, we'll get back into the passage here this morning. It will help if you follow along as we go. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of ground to cover. We'll especially move a little quicker through the, the final two sections um, but but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start in, in fact, if you have your Bibles open, we'll just start uh, very quickly by remembering what's going on here so far in this sermon. We got through uh, the first two points of Samuel's five-point sermon. I don't know if you remember, but we talked about the fact that if Samuel would have been in seminary class when he prepared this, he would have got a low grade because everybody knows a sermon is supposed to have three points. Samuel writes a five-point sermon. He would have got in trouble for that. Uh, we just made it through the first two a couple weeks ago. And if, and if you look at verses 1 to 5, we'll just remember what Samuel's first point was, uh, which was uh, that of re- reviewing his own leadership in Israel. Um, Samuel starts here by putting his own leadership of Israel on trial before the people. And as we read the verses, the people vindicated Samuel. They, they'd say that Samuel had, in fact, been a faithful leader. He hadn't taken uh, things from them that he shouldn't have taken. He hadn't abused the people. Um, and, and we pointed out last time that this aspect of faithful leadership is actually very crucial if we're going to have spiritual renewal in our lives. Uh, ultimately, this is something that points us forward to Jesus Himself as the climactic leader of God's people because, because if we're going to be renewed in our trust in the living God, un, unfaithful spiritual leaders, le- leaders who are corrupt and harm people, they are extremely damaging to our spiritual progress. However, while leaders may fail us, the great truth of the gospel, of course, is that Jesus never fails us. He's, he's the good shepherd. He's the one who remains faithful forever. And Samuel gives us a picture of how important that is. Because spiritual renewal takes place under faithful leadership. And in the coming of Christ, we have the faithful leader par excellence. Now, despite the failures of others around us, whatever may happen, Jesus is the one who ultimately calls us to come to Him and find rest. Jesus is the one who calls us to follow Him and find life. Jesus calls us to trust in Him and find hope that ultimately transcends anything that the world has to offer. And because Jesus is faithful, He never leaves us, He never forsakes us, He never fails us, 
because Jesus is faithful, instead of being uh, turned off or turned away from the path of life, uh, which is the effect that, that unfaithful leaders so often have, we're put off uh, living a faithful life. After all, we think if they can't do it, how could I ever do it? We can be put off by that. But in Jesus, we find this, this relief of a faithful leader in whom we can ultimately rest and trust. After all, He was faithful all the way to the cross to secure our hope. We know we have the one whose love never fails. Uh, so to begin with, Samuel helps point us in that direction as he speaks about the important place of faithful leadership among the people of God. He has been a faithful leader, and he establishes that before he engages in more detail in this call to renewal that will unfold in the rest of the sermon. Uh, so that was point one. Samuel makes a, makes a point of his own faithful leadership. And then his second point is in verses 6 to 11. And there we looked at how Samuel uh, spoke about uh, the Lord's historical works. He recounts the Lord's delivering, delivering works in the lives of, of the people historically. And, and he begins by speaking about the Exodus and then uh, talks through some of Israel's history, how the Lord had proved Himself to be the deliverer that the people needed time and time again, down through history, even amid, the, even amid their, their faltering and their trusting. They abandon Him. He still comes and rescues them. The Lord is the one who continually works for the rescue of His people. And, and we saw that even, even the trouble itself, so the hardship that the people faced because they disobeyed God, even that wasn't something that was removed from God's purposes. But He actually worked through those circumstances to help them feel their need, and they returned to Him as a result. And as, again, as we think about spiritual renewal in our own lives... We can end up far from God, pursuing things that are contrary to Him. We can be pursuing that emptiness uh, only to discover that we've been going down a hopeless road again. We've gone in ways that are contrary to God, and from that place, we call to Him, and He delivers us. Those hardships, which are nothing less than that, they are extraordinary instances and circumstances of difficulty. Often, they are exactly what the Lord uses, uses to help us feel our need to return to Him. They help us feel our weakness and our need for the one who rescues uh, in, in an acute kind of way. And so, and so Samuel brings that up here as he recounts uh, the Lord's delivering works in verses 6 to 11. And so we have those first two points of Samuel's sermon. And now uh, we can get down to the business of looking at the rest of the sermon here. And, and we'll begin in verses 12 to 18 where Samuel confronts the people's present sin. He confronts the people's present sin. Um, now we know just from our own experience uh, that true help in any sense, comes when honesty about a situation is present. Uh, if we went to the doctor, for example, with a truly critical health concern, and the doctor uh, brushed it off with a smile and, and sweet and comforting words telling us not to worry about it and everything is going to be okay, while we might feel better when we immediately left the medical office, uh, the long-term effects of that kind of interaction would, would of course, be totally devastating because True help only comes when there's honesty about the situation. And, and as we come to this section of Samuel's uh, sermon here, we find Samuel speaking to the people in a very straightforward way about what's going on. Samuel doesn't sidestep a hard conversation, uh, but instead he gets right to the root of the trouble as he speaks to the people about their sin 
or, or to use some of the words that Samuel uses in this chapter. He, he references their, their disobedience to God, their rebellion against God, the abandonment of their trust in God, those kinds of things. We use the word sin, and it's a word uh, that is so charged, even, even socially, it's such a charged term. Now, we, we can associate it with, with deep shame. We can associate it with historical religious hurt, all of those things. As we come to it under the Scriptures, it's defined for us in a number of different ways. But ultimately, what it reflects is the fact that the Lord and the giver of life has called us uh, not to His rigid and, 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 and dry and unlifelike way, but instead the Lord and giver of life has called us to a way that's flourishing, and in our rebellion, like we have that word here, in our turning away from the Lord, we find ourselves sinning against Him by going contrary to His way of life. That's what, that's what sin is. It's saying, God, your good way is something I'm rejecting, and I'm going to go my own way. And those are the kinds of words reflected in, in Samuel's discussion here. And, and, he, and he confronts the people on this, which we see as he sets up a contrast there in verse 12. Um, so, so in the prior verses, Samuel's just recounted all of God's historical works for the people. All these works of deliverance that the Lord has engaged in uh, down through history, even though they sin against Him, God brings deliverance again and again and again. Um, and, and, he, and then we get into to verse 12, where we see that this fact of God's kindness has once again escaped the people's thinking. Because instead of trusting in the Lord to deliver them from the imminent threat of Nahash, king of the Ammonites, instead of that... Uh, they said, we must have a king reign over us. That was their solution to the Nahash problem. And, and, and the central concern with that request, as Samuel makes clear at the end of verse 12, was that it wasn't just a, a king that the people wanted. It wasn't a benign request for a new leader to help them in the midst of, of a traumatic situation. No, the, the, the crux of the issue is found there where, where in the midst of this danger that they face, as Samuel says here, they were actually rejecting the Lord as their king and placing their trust elsewhere. So, so even though the Lord had been so faithful to regularly, historically, graciously, undeservedly rescue Israel from their enemies all around, which is, by the way, exactly what kings do. What is a king's number one job? Protect the people in your care. It's exactly what a king does. God has been the, the, the greatest king the people could ever imagine in His delivering power extended toward them. Here the pressure is on yet again, and they forget the Lord and they want a king like the nations to help. This is, this is their idolatry. This is their exchange that's taking place. So Samuel makes that clear in verse 12. This is, this is the sin. This is the, the disobedience, the rebellion, the idolatry. We can pick whatever word we like, but all of those words reflect turning away from God to indulge in a hope that is centered on something else or someone else. Uh, which, again, is going on here. Instead of trusting in God as their king, well, we need a king like the nations. So Samuel brings that point up, and then from there, he goes on to speak about the fact that they have received a king. So, so Saul has been made king. The Lord did grant their request, as we know from the narrative. It's been a little rocky, but, but Saul is their king now. And Samuel says here that if you fear the Lord and don't rebel against Him, things will go well now. The Lord will continue to be gracious. Things will go well. But if you rebel against the Lord, the Lord's, going to, the Lord's hand is going to be against you, just like it was against your ancestors in that whole last section that we were just talking about when they, when they abandoned him. And, and to punctuate how serious this is, Samuel uses uh, legal language, first of all, to get the people's attention. Again, if you read through this, you can see there's this witness uh, language throughout. This is kind of like a court case sort of sermon. 
And in verse 16, Samuel says to them, present yourselves. So quite literally in Hebrew, he says, take a stand. And then he says, um, to, to see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. And then in verses 17 and 18, Samuel calls to the Lord, and this extraordinary event takes place right in the middle of Samuel's sermon. Now, no doubt when Samuel is preaching, or at least from this day forward when Samuel's teaching, nobody's ever going to fall asleep in one of his sermons. Because in verse 17, Samuel says, is it the wheat harvest today? If you would have nodded, it is. Yeah. I will call on the Lord and He will send thunder and rain so that you will recognize what an immense evil you committed in the Lord's sight by requesting a king for yourselves. Then verse 18, Samuel calls on the Lord and we're told that on that day the Lord sent thunder and rain. As a result, the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. No kidding. So, so, so in the middle of Samuel, confronting the people about their sin, he's speaking to them about their rejection of the Lord, <coughs> Excuse me, their desire to trust in a king like the nations, all of this. He confronts them, and then he calls down this storm upon the land. And, and it's a storm that is unseasonable, to say the least. So, so it's the time of the wheat harvest, which is, which is the dry season, uh, there, as one commentator put it, this is something like like having snow in Miami on Memorial Day. That's what's going on here. So the storm is unseasonable, and, and and as a result, it is clearly a unique manifestation of the Lord's of the Lord's express power. And and the storm isn't only unseasonable in that miraculous kind of way, but it also would have been very damaging. Um, my mom's family is all from Swift Current, Saskatchewan, in Canada. And uh, Swift Current is in the middle of what seems like endless wheat fields, especially when you're an eight-year-old and you're driving to visit grandma and grandpa. Hours and hours and hours of wheat fields. Um, but when it's time for, for harvest, the last thing in the world anybody wants is rain. And why is the last thing anybody wants rain? Well, it's because it flattens your crop, doesn't it? It ruins your crop and you can't, and you can't harvest the wheat. Uh, so this storm that Samuel prays for, it's not just unseasonably miraculous, but it's actually devastating in its effect economically. And then we think to ourselves, what in the world is this about? Because we hear Samuel confronting the people about their rebellion against God. And, and, and what does this disastrous storm have to do with anything except, except maybe display a little divine vengeance? Is that all this is? Is this, just, is this just angry prophet, an angry God up in heaven raining down a wrath on these people? Is this some kind of divine temper tantrum? We have to wonder what's going on here. But of course, we know this, this is not just a mere product of a, of a fiery prophet's prayers or, or an angry God's vengeance or something like that. Samuel prays for this storm, and the Lord sends the storm because in the rain and thunder, something is being made very clear. And, and it's that the Lord Himself is not indifferent to His people's sin, first of all. And secondly, it is the Lord who, who delivered them in the past who keeps His word. He's not indifferent to their sin, and He keeps His word. Because under Moses, before the people of Israel entered the land of promise, we read in places like Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, God made it plain through Moses that if the people were unfaithful to God in the land of promise, uh, instead of covenant blessing, they would experience judgment. They would experience God's disciplining hand upon them. And Leviticus 26 goes so far as to, as to say very directly, the land will not yield its produce. In other words, you won't get the crop. 
And so this storm comes in the middle of, of a sermon, no less. This storm comes as an indicator that the God who promises deliverance, he, he gives His good word about deliverance, He is the same God who brings His disciplining hand to bear on His people, just as He promised to do also. So, so Samuel confronts the people in their sin, and in these events, the people end in a place of, of trembling. There's this physical manifestation of God's clear, interactive opinion on the matter of their sin. They, they see the Lord that they've rejected is, is a living and active God who doesn't tolerate idolatry at the end of the day, which isn't a bad thing to see. Because this whole incident reflects an accurate display of what, it, what it's actually like to go against the living God. Whether, whether we call it sin against God or disobedience or rebellion or, or idolatry, any of these words, to turn from the living God and pursue alternatives isn't something that the Lord's indifferent to. And if the Lord says His hand of discipline will come on the other side of rejecting Him, it, it'll come. And, and, and so this confrontation of sin here, it, it is a reminder to us in that it may seem like, like coddling certain things in our lives isn't really that big of a deal. Even Israel asking for a king. After all, there was provision for a king in Deuteronomy. Is it, is it really such a big deal? Except we've seen all through here, the Lord knows the heart. And it may seem like those things that we might brush off at a surface level is not really being that big of a deal after all. Just a little relief over here or a little, a little bit over here that's contrary to God's purposes, but it's not really that big of a thing. We see here that that's just nothing short of dangerous. Because sin always brings consequences. To, to rebel against the one who prescribes the way of life is to do uh, to, to go the very contrary way to that life that He calls us to, is to turn our backs on what really brings wholeness and peace and rest, and ultimately it violates God Himself. So it's dangerous, which, which is what the people realize in the end of verse 18, where we're told they greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. They greatly feared the Lord and the one who knew the word of the Lord who was applying it to them. A very straightforward statement. It's not safe to disregard God and what He says and chase after falsehood. If we doubt that for a moment, look at those fields. And if effective spiritual renewal is going to take place in our lives, we need that reminder of truth. Because it may even be right now in our lives that there are quiet corners where we do coddle those things that are contrary to God's purposes. We think maybe they'll bring a measure of relief. Maybe they even do bring a measure of relief for a time. I'm sure it felt good to the people to desire a king like the nations. It's so tangible. It's so acceptable. Wouldn't it be nice to look like the people groups all around us? This is going to be a big relief, guys. Let's go ask Samuel for this. Right? But those areas of temptation that might seem to bring relief in a moment need to be understood in light of what they really are. Because if they reflect what's contrary to God's kind provision and purpose, if they're contrary to God's loving and flourishing plan... It's not just that those indulgences end badly and bring trouble and sorrow, but ultimately those things put us at, odd, at odds with our Maker. This is, this is the, the God of the storm, after all. So He's not to be messed with, uh, which the writer of the Hebrews picks up on, doesn't he, when, when he says this, it's a terrifying thing to be at odds with this God. It's, it's not safe. So, so here Samuel confronts the people in their sin. And, and, and we see this expression of God's discipline again in their lives. And we have to ask, so, so what now? What now for Israel? We even ask, what now for us in a context like this? Because instead of a renewal sermon at this point, this seems much more just like a condemnation sermon from Samuel. Like, it's all over now. Look at, what, look at what's... Economically, we're destroyed. Right? Well, what's going on here? How, where's the renewal? Where's the life in this? 
Uh, and, and we know ultimately, well, it might seem like it's all over. It, it's not all over. Because in the economy of God's purposes for His people, well, while discipline, because of our sin, may be something we experience at some level, um, hardship may come in different ways, still in the economy of God's purposes, He extends His kindness. He, he calls us to return uh, from chasing empty things and trust in Him and find life, which is exactly what happens next in the text. So, so we're going to move through this next section quickly, but, but watch it as we go. Uh, if you look at verses 19 to 21, we move from Samuel uh, confronting the people about their sin to now the people responding in repentance, and, and Samuel speaking to them a bit about, about that. So they're returning to the Lord here, and this repentance involves three parts if you watch the text. Two parts for the people, one part for Samuel. Look, look, look at how this plays out. So, so first of all, again, 19 to 21, first of all, they plead for Samuel to intercede before God on their behalf so that they don't die. This is, this is obviously an effect that the storm has had upon them. They recognize the power of God is very great, and, 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 they, and they desire somebody to stand between themselves and God. Pray, oh, pray, pray to God for us, Samuel, that we won't just be struck down, that we won't die. But, but we see that this is exactly what we feel our need for when we're caught up in conviction over sin. We, we, we know, we, we've, we've in, in, a, in a small kind of way, a small way to put it, we know we've fouled out. We know we've gone in wrong ways. We feel our need, in that case, for one to stand between us and God and plead for our life. We know that need. We, we can't come before a holy God and be safe. We need somebody in between, which, of course, is ultimately what Jesus does for us. He, he pleads our case before God the Father, and because of the merits of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, uh, where we're made clean in the presence of God and granted life. And there's a small picture of that here. Here's Samuel the intercessor. Samuel the one who stands between sinful people and holy God and pleads for their life. It's a wonderful picture ultimately of what Christ will fulfill. Because as the people feel the weight of their sin, they ask him to pray. They ask Samuel to pray so that death won't come to them. And in their sin. And in our own renewal, this is where we need to begin. If we're going to have spiritual renewal in our own lives and an honest apprehension of what's going on in our hearts, we must begin here. We must begin by saying something like, Lord Jesus, you know how far I've been. You know that before a holy God, I deserve nothing but condemnation. But in you, I know there's life. Please be that life for me. Be the one who makes me pure before the living God. And in that I'll find my rest. In that I'll find hope. If I'm going to be renewed, it must be through you. I appeal to you for life. And we have a, a glimpse of how that looks here in terms of repentance beginning. The people ask Samuel, plead to God on our behalf so we don't die. And then secondly, the people confess their sin. Uh, they're, they're very honest about what they've done, which is, which is really something. Just as we think about Israel's history, this may be one of the most honest confessions in the Old Testament. They don't sugarcoat it. They don't make excuses. They don't lay blame elsewhere. Uh, they, they just say it very plainly in verse 19. We have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. We own it. We see what we've done. We see what we've done. They, they admit the direct nature of their idolatry. And, and as we see this, we understand this to also be so critical in our own returning. Uh, be, because we don't want to pretend our chasing after what's empty is something that it's not. We don't want to blame others for it. We don't want to call it something it isn't. We need to be able to say, Lord, I've been looking for hope in worthless things. I just have. I've been looking for comfort in worthless things again and again. 
and I need you to come and renew my heart. I confess that sin to you, and I know I, know I need the grace that you extend. Which is exactly what we find here, because in response to their appeal and their confession, Samuel speaks to them. And, and if we can put it this way, Samuel speaks to them about continuing from the now. I don't know another way to put it. For verse, verse 20, look at that. Samuel says, don't be afraid, which are wonderful words. Uh, it might seem a little bit, a little bit overspoken after you just see this huge storm come down and destroy all your crops. You're terrified by all this. Don't be afraid. They must be looking at Samuel going, you're the weirdest preacher we've ever heard. You're calling this stuff down. Now you're telling us not to be afraid after all this happened in the middle of your sermon. What are you talking about? He says, don't be afraid, which, which does remind us who, who else but the Lord of grace can we offend so severely, so cosmically, in fact, and, and then only to, have, only to have his word come to us and, and set our fears aside. It's really an amazing statement that Samuel makes. Don't be afraid. Even though you've committed all this evil, he says, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. So he calls them to this, to this renewed life. They plead for mercy, and the people make an honest confession of their sin, and then, and then this, is, this is where things are really amazing. Because instead of Samuel saying, okay, okay, that's a good confession of sin. It seems honest, seems heartfelt. I get it. Uh, you guys really messed up. You're owning the fact you messed up, so it's time to get back uh, to the way things used to be. We need to redo everything. We're getting rid of Saul as a first matter of business. Uh, and then we're going to go back to how it was before. We've got to hit a big rewind button and somehow undo all this damage of your sin. You've obviously made a total mess of it. It'll take years to, to undo all this damage. Your return to the Lord will begin now. We can probably expect about a six-year turnaround time as we set the kingdom uh, back to the way it was before and get everything straightened out. That's what we might expect Samuel to say. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, leave what you've been doing behind and serve and worship the Lord from this point on. Leave what you've been doing behind and serve and worship the Lord from now on. You made a mess of things, but, but we're starting in this renewed position from the now. Serve Him, leave the rest behind. Which is an amazing renewal statement, a renewal program on the part of God and His grace. Listen to how one commentator makes application from what Samuel says here. This is Dale Ralph Davis. I've quoted him to you before. But he says this, You don't go back and wallow in your guilt. Relive the tragic mistake, the big one that, is, that has soured your life. You don't make yourself miserable by bathing your mind in the memory of your rebellion, punching the replay button and going over the whole messy episode in lurid and precise details as though such misery makes atonement. No, you go forward in basic, simple fidelity to the Lord from that point on. Or to quote Jesus to the paralytic in John chapter 5, what does he say? Take up your bed and walk. Sin no more. Well, one of the greatest hindrances to a life of, of renewal, to a life of repentance, is wallowing in past behaviors. Isn't it? Thinking we've got to go back in order to go forward. Those, those things can come and darken our hearts. They can discourage our faith. They can depress our minds. We need to remember that the evil one himself is described as the accuser of God's people. Are those areas of darkness the evil one can take and mold and, and bring to bear on our hearts in ways that can ultimately be very crushing to our lives of faith. And the call of the gospel we have right here is this. Do not fear, go and sin no more. Do not fear, serve the Lord. Do not fear, go forward in a life of faithfulness. 
And of course, we wonder, how can this be? How, how, can, how can it be uh, j- just, this, j- just this much, uh, this full of grace? How can we go from a place of rebellion before God to this place of continued assurance of grace as we renew our path uh, going forward from this point on? And the answer to that is it's not because we're so wonderful and lovable. We have rebelled, we do rebel. But, but we can be freed from fear to sin no more precisely of what Sam, because of what Samuel says next in verse 22. Verse 22, the Lord will not abandon His people. Why? Because we're lovable? Because we never mess up? No, the Lord will not abandon His people because of His great name and because He has determined to make you His own people. This is why Samuel continues to serve uh, the people there and pray for them in verse 23. That's what it's sourced in. And this is why the people must continue to serve the Lord in verse 24 as things go on here. The Lord doesn't leave us Because it is in the very character of God. It is part of the very personhood of God Himself. And it is indelibly part of His plan for the ages to maintain His commitment to save. It's who He is. It's what He's doing. Which is is climactically displayed when God Himself comes. When God the Son comes and goes all the way to the cross to pay for our sin. Me being safe and saved despite my rebellion, is not a matter of merit on my part in any sense. Us being safe and saved, despite our rebellion, is not centered on any kind of personal merit. It is first and foremost a matter of God's own express commitment to His divine character and His divine purpose. The blood of Jesus' cross proves that. He doesn't abandon those whom He's called. That is not a salvation sourced in us. It is a salvation sourced in Him. He is the one who commits to the saving and He is the one who ultimately does the work because of who He is and what He's determined to do. It's not without its seasons of difficulty. Verse 25 speaks about the people rebelling and ultimately being swept away. Samuel warns them against that. It's actually a reference there to Deuteronomy's uh, promise of exile from the land if the people persist in sin. And we do know the story. The people persist in sin, don't they? They do. And they are swept away from the land eventually. But even in exile, we read wonderful phrases through some of those books, like in in chapter 1 of Daniel, where we read things like, God isn't gone, but He continues to grant kindness and compassion. God continues to grant kindness and compassion even to His people who have been swept away because of their unfaithfulness. He doesn't leave. He never leaves. We may wander. You may wander. But for those who are His, the Lord will never ultimately abandon us. After all, He's loved us all the way to death, even death on a cross. Salvation, at the end of the day, we have to understand that salvation is who God is and what God does. And And so we can be renewed by this. By by this, we're actually even freed to call our sin what it is. We don't have to hide it because with God, there's grace to continue on. Sin can be rebellion. Sin is disobedience. And we we can recognize it for what it is, but only because we recognize God for who He is. He's not the one who's indifferent towards sin. His disciplining hand can come, but ultimately we don't fear. Ultimately, we return. We return again and again, not to rehash the mess we've made in our sin but to return to serve the Lord and worship Him and offer our obedience from this time forward because He comes toward us with His cosmic plan and purpose to save. And maybe that's just a word of encouragement for you this morning. From this time forward, have you had that prayer? 
Oh, Lord, I recognize my weakness, but from this time forward, I'm actually, I'm not going to fear. From this time forward, I'm going to serve you. From this time forward, just despite my folly, I'm going to do this because I know you're the one who's committed to me. You're more committed to my salvation than I'm committed to my salvation. You're more powerful than I could ever be. And I know going forward, I can only do this because you're the God who comes in saving strength, power, and purpose to accomplish things. And so we can be renewed by this rather than, rather than uh, torn up by the context of, of sin and expressions of sin in our lives. We can be renewed and come back, and come back to the Lord seeing that uh, while we would otherwise fear, that fear can be cast entirely away because God's, God's prerogative is to extend salvation ultimately and climactically through the cross of Christ. And so we can sing songs like, like we do so often with, with full hearts where we say things like, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know, there's a reason nobody goes, shh, don't say that when we sing that song. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Just honest. Prone to leave the God I love. That's, that's what my heart is like. I'm prone to leave. Right? So what do we pray in the song? Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We're free to sing that song because this is the God of renewing mercies that he continues to apply to us. And we're thankful for that. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that we would be renewed by this truth today, that we would be uh, called to rest again in your continual and constant care for us, the fact that while we may find ourselves uh, abandoning you in a sense, you never abandon your people and we, and we love you because of that. We rest in that and we appeal to you, O oh Lord. May we go forward in lives of faithful service and worship because of what you've done and because you promised to be with us. We pray this in the, in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.